Welcome to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson, and I'm joined by MNN's Bill Werner, Tasha Radel, and Mike Grimm. We're going to delve into what's going on in the North Star State. If it matters in Minnesota, we've got it covered. I'm J.W. Cox, filling in this week for Scott Peterson. Coming up, Eminent Sports Director Mike Graham walks us through the changes coming to high school sports in Minnesota this fall. Later in the program, we check in with Capitol reporter Bill Werner for a roundup on the latest in politics. But first, this. I'm Scott Peterson. As parents, students, and teachers around the state prep for a back-to-school season unlike any other in recent memory, I spoke with Health Partners pediatrician Dr. Andrea Singh for a lesson in health, safety, and learning amid COVID-19. I think the number one message is that school districts, the state, um, everybody just wants what's best for kids. And there's going to be really um, no black and white answers on how things are going to run. We have to be prepared to expect the unexpected. Um, I think the governor's plan uh, was a well-thought-out plan, and what I liked about it especially was that it really set that bar of saying, we want children in school. We know that in-school learning is the gold standard. However, there will be situations, given the pandemic, where that is just not safe for students or teachers. And so by giving us the metrics and and saying, let's look at the data and the prevalence um, in different counties, it afforded districts the opportunity to say, okay, we know where we have to draw that line. Now let's go back to our individual teams and say, what can we make work for students that's safe with budgetary concerns, with training needs, with space accommodations, with um, the prevalence in our county? Because obviously what the needs of maybe Dakota County are going to be really different than maybe Olmstead or, you know, Cass County, um, depending on how prevalent the disease is there. With regards to safety, obviously parents are going to be concerns that, concerned that their kids are safe. Uh, from a pediatric standpoint, um, how safe is it, do you think, to send kids back to the classroom, even with social distancing at this time? I know it can be hard to kind of determine that or predict it ahead of time, but um, is it a good idea as far as you're concerned as a doctor? Yes, great question. I think, um, yes, I think if the proper modifications are made to the classrooms, then it is a safe proposition if we're looking at how prevalent the disease is in our individual communities. So we have to have school environments where there is the opportunity to social distance. The kids have to wear masks. We have to encourage kids to, you know, wash their hands. And there will also be some kids that maybe have underlying health conditions or family members with significant underlying health conditions where they may just be best served by distance learning. But a generally healthy child should do okay if we can make those modifications. You know, we've had some of the um, the experts, the folks, teachers, educators, um, talk about how distance learning has kind of a, a learning curve of its own in terms of having kids working from home. And uh, it seems like the general consensus is that is not nearly as effective as in the classroom teaching. Talk a little bit, if you don't mind, about uh, what some of the concerns are about continuing to have kids learn from home versus in the classroom. Sure. I mean, our teachers 
are one of our most valuable resources in Minnesota. And I think a lot of parents, um, including myself, you know, really uh, learned a lot through distance learning this past spring um, and have even more respect for teachers than we ever have before. I think distance learning poses a few challenges to teams. One is obviously the academic need. Um, the beauty of an in-person education is that teachers are able to um, have that back and forth with students and modify their curricula based on that individual's level of understanding and that child's need. It's a general curricula, but when you're in a classroom looking out on that sea of, you know, really eager 30 students' faces, you can tell when somebody is not um, following along or when the class is lost. You don't have that same opportunity necessarily with distance learning. And so I think obviously tailoring academic needs to individuals is um, one of the the inability to tailor individual needs to um, individual students' learning styles is one of the challenges with distance learning. Um, I think the lack of social development, especially for our younger kids who school serves many purposes. One is the straight-up academics, but another is learning how to interact with other children, with teachers, following rules, um, learning to advocate for yourself. Those things are lost in a distance learning setting. And for those students that are going to be returning to the classroom uh, in, in those cases, how realistic is it to expect that, uh, especially on the younger side of things, that students are going to be conscientious uh, sort of on their own about wearing masks, keeping distance as much as possible, washing hands? That seems to be a concern. It is a concern. However, kids are amazing and they can learn rules. You know, a child that has never been in a school setting, the first day of kindergarten, they have a lot to learn about sitting in circle time and raising their hand to ask questions and, you know, when are they allowed to use the restroom, but they learn. And I think it's a new world for all of us, even as adults, we're learning about social distancing and wearing our masks. And I would encourage families, uh, as they're preparing for the fall, to have their kids practice wearing masks at home. Some of our kids have really not gone into a public environment in the last six months, and so they may not have had to wear a mask because they were only with their families. Thank you to my guest, Health Partners pediatrician, Dr. Andrea Singh. Minnesota Matters returns after this. Son, uh, can you hand me that big screwdriver? This one, Dad? Uh, no, that's a wrench. Uh, I need the long one close to your foot. Why? Uh, because I need to loosen a screw. Why? Because I have to change the oil filter. Why? Because I love you! <laughs> <laughs> the smallest moments can have the biggest impact on a child's life. Alright. <sighs> Now pass me the new filter. Why? Ha <laughs> <laughs> very funny. <laughs> Take time to be a dad today. For more information, dial 1-877-432-3411 or visit us at www.fatherhood.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. 
Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. There will be no high school football or volleyball seasons in Minnesota this fall. The Minnesota State High School League this week opted to move the football and volleyball to spring. Cross country, soccer, girls tennis, and girls swimming and diving will go on as planned this fall with a start to practice on August 17th. There will be limitations and protocols put into place, including reduced schedules and shortened lengths to the season. The football and volleyball seasons would likely start after a shortened traditional winter season, while the traditional spring season will get pushed back. Minnesota News Network Sports Director Mike Grimm spoke with Minnesota State High School League Executive Director Eric Martins about the decision-making process and what the past several months have been like. As soon as we made decisions about summer coaching waiver period and what things would look like in the summer, the next natural questions were around what is fall going to look like. And uh, we know the, the nature of the Minnesota State High School League and that we are connected directly to member schools. And so our decisions need to be in line with the recommendations for our member schools uh, and the way in which they're going to return to learn. And so uh, we couldn't uh, be making these decisions sooner than we found out from the governor in terms of where we were going to be at. And then when you add the uh, information around a localized decision that's going to be based on metrics within counties, um, that just makes it a little bit more complex. And so uh, a lot of work going into where our school is going to be, what does that mean for us with activities and opportunities for kids? How do we, how do we make those decisions knowing that the health and well-being of our, of our individual students is, uh, in a lot of cases, uh, relying to some extent on their participation. It's, it's their passion. It's been, a, it's been a hobby. It's been a a location for a lot of them for quite a long time and they, they see that as just an automatic part of what they do and so when it comes to trying to measure that against the uh, the risks that are involved with certain activities that makes it really really difficult and for those that listened in or were a part of our board meeting they heard that our board struggled mightily to try to figure out how to do that well and uh, approved the beginning of some sports on august 17th as they are typically scheduled um, but then, as you mentioned, made the decision to uh, move back volleyball and football in terms of any competition season to later in the school year with more details yet to be defined on what that looks like. But they do want students to be able to participate to some extent and approve the idea of practice in the fall and ask our eligibility committee to uh, kind of delineate what the, what the factors would be in that and the, the restrictions or limitations of that practice experience. So uh, a lot of good work, a lot of uh, behind-the-scenes work to, to study a lot and look at youth guidance on sports, what the NFHS has to say about return to participation, uh, as well as a number of other factors that are specific to Minnesota. So uh, all in all, as you said, a long couple of days through a workshop and then a board meeting, uh, but in the end, that's where we are as of today. If you could, and I know you you hit on a couple of them, but at the end of the day, what was what what were the major uh, reasons for football and volleyball specific? As you mentioned, uh, soccer, swimming, tennis, uh, some others were are going to be allowed to compete. Um, uh, was it was it just the the nature of the sports involved uh, in terms of the decision? I think I think there's some similarities and, and certainly there's some differences, right? So with volleyball, one of the major factors is that, uh, especially when we talk about fall sports and the ones that were approved, the only one that was approved to start uh, is, a, is an individualized sport, and that's swimming, and that's indoors. And, and with the understanding that without uh, visitors to school, uh, it's unlikely that our swim meets are going to have fans or spectators. Uh, 
Um, but in terms of swimming, we're not in face-to-face competition uh, over the course of time, and we're not necessarily in a gym. And in fact, uh, the ventilation systems within swimming pools have to be significant because of a lot of other reasons around pool and, and uh, the chemicals, et cetera. Um, when you talk about football, uh, raw numbers are, are certainly a challenge with that. Uh, the guidance still says pods of 25 or less, and, and very few of our football teams across the state uh, would be less than 25. And then you add the competition in, uh, and it is regular physical contact face-to-face uh, over the course of time of a, of a competition, and that just becomes really challenging. Uh, and that's why it's categorized in that high-risk category uh, by almost every organization out there that, that provides ratings on, on uh, different sports. And so I think those were the driving factors for that. Um, the board looked at ways to, to try to mitigate that. And as you saw or heard, there's some, some shortened seasons, uh, reduce the number of competitions, eliminate scrimmages, those kinds of things. Again, going back to being able to manage cohorts or pod sizes that are going to be easily traceable and better to be able to isolate if there are cases that pop up from time to time. From the standpoint of the calendar now, how does it look from when you put football and volleyball in the spring? I'm sure people immediately then will say, hold it, my son or daughter plays baseball or softball or lacrosse, runs track, plays golf. Uh, How how will the calendar look now come uh, springtime? Yeah, we've looked at a couple of different models, and some other states have what they would consider prototypes that are out there. We haven't gone that far to publish something, but now is the time for us to start putting some plans together. I think that both of those sports bring uh, bring different nuances. Obviously, volleyball as an indoor sport, um, we can uh, do some things schedule-wise, and we don't have to worry about whether or not facilities are going to be weather-ready. Uh, it's going to be more about availability, and so... Again, it's all going to be dependent on uh, on what the numbers are for uh, for the virus and uh, and what spread is that in terms of what we might be able to do. But uh, if we modify seasons across the board and, and shorten some things a little bit on the on the winter side and on the spring side and uh, and push some spring things out a little bit further, uh, many states are going to the end of June. Discussion has even been in for the middle of July um, that that should provide some opportunities. Uh, to be able to slide that in. I think football comes with some other considerations because being able to play outdoors, which is where football is played in Minnesota, uh, means that we've got to look at that really, really carefully about how we can reduce the overlap as much as possible to allow students to, to participate in the typical activities that they would, that in, in traditional schedules would not be in competition with one another. Uh, but again, I think the timing is going to be Uh, something we're going to have to work toward to try and figure out what that can look like. Part two of Mike Grimm's interview with the State High School League will continue after this on Minnesota Matters. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. Eminent Sports Director Mike Grimm continues his conversation with Minnesota State High School League Executive Director Eric Martins on Minnesota Matters. If we've learned anything here is that what is true today may not be true next week, right? Things change rapidly when you're talking about a health pandemic. Yeah, and when you look at some other states, they have caveats that say the situation will be reviewed every 14 days. You know, So every two weeks they're going back and checking their decisions and and I have the, the great opportunity to connect directly with the executive directors from uh, a number of other states. Quite honestly, I can call any state in the nation to get their plan. Um, but those that are close to Minnesota, we, we connect regularly. Uh, and they have plans. 
and at the same time, they're asking the same kinds of questions that we are. Was it the right decision? Is it the right decision right now? What's going to change? What direction are our numbers going? Uh, what's our what's our public going to support? What are our schools going to be able to support as we go forward? So, uh, flexibility and adaptability are two words that we continue to use in every sentence around planning for the coming school year. Couple of quick ones, and I know you don't know the answer, but I want to know what the thinking is in regard to state tournaments, right? Because um, I think there's some discussion again might change week to week. But what are you thinking from trying to play for state championships and all of these sports involved? I think the, the first answer is people have to be prepared for the fact that culminating experiences for seasons may not be a state tournament. Um, in in our conversations with the Department of Health. Uh, and where they're seeing the, the statistics at this time and, and large group gatherings, uh, there's just lots of concerns around what our usual state tournaments look like. Uh, and so we continue to explore that uh, and what that can be or how that can look um, and continue to just watch at this point. That's why all of our state tournament uh, titles right now are to be determined. Uh, we stay in regular contact with our venues where we typically hold our state tournaments. Um, they are largely on hold, and, and they're great partners with us. And, and they say, keep us informed. We need to know where you're at. Um, but, but some of those large venues, just they're not having events right now, and it's just not possible. So uh, we'll continue to take a look at it. We're, we're hoping that we're going to be able to have some regional championships of some kind. Uh, if we can move to the point of bringing uh, representation from across the state together, uh, right now, that's really uh, recommended not to happen by all of the the youth sports guidance. Um, we're gonna we're gonna take that a day at a time and a week at a time as we as we plan forward. And then the other question um, you mentioned, you put some limitations on number of competitions, length of season, calendar is still somewhat up in the air. Um, but it looks like you have loosened isn't maybe the right word, but you've expanded the opportunity for practice time. Uh, obviously, the spring sports this past spring didn't get a lot of practice time. Some didn't get any. Um, and so even though there's football and volleyball moving to the, f- to the spring, they will be allowed to practice, and it sounds like maybe even some of the spring sports will be allowed to practice in the fall even though they won't have games. Is that right? That is correct. Uh, our board is, you know, they, they came into all of this decision-making with, with the goal uh, of trying to provide some kind of experience in every activity that we sponsor. And, uh, and with that, when there's a gap or when there's an opportunity to uh, to provide that experience, which may be a little bit different than what we've had in the past and quite honestly has been kind of precluded by bylaws uh, that say you, you have contact within your season and otherwise you don't, um, you know, bringing, bringing spring into the fall uh, provides chances if schools want to take advantage of that uh, to be able to have workouts with their coaches and, uh, and call them practices and not be in violation of anything. And again, get the benefits of being a part of a team, being able to work together, having that connection with an adult mentor uh, who takes a real interest in the, in the entire student and uh, supports them both uh, physically and also mentally and academically. And uh, we can see a lot of benefits out of that kind of relationship. One thing that we need to remember is that uh, the goal across the state is, uh, is to have our kids back in school and it's to have our kids be able to access the activities that they always have been able to. Whatever we can do from a community standpoint, from a statewide standpoint, to reduce the numbers of infections and, uh, and reduce the threat to 
students and teachers and coaches and all that are connected to that, that youth experience in school. Uh, and if those numbers go down, we can run almost anything. And we're ready to do that uh, as quickly as possible with, with whatever means possible for our kids. That's Minnesota State High School League Executive Director Eric Martins discussing this week's big decision. More Minnesota Matters next. As a young teenage boy, I didn't even know what autism was. How do you even spell that? A few years later, I heard that a friend's cousin's son had been diagnosed with autism. I still wasn't sure what that really meant. When I went to college, my roommate's brother had autism. When I moved to the city for work, my best friend called me and told me his son had been diagnosed with autism. We were both in shock. I still remember the day I walked into the house and saw that look on my wife's face. I knew something was wrong. I'll never forget how I felt when she said, our son has autism. Autism is getting closer to home. Today, one in 110 children is diagnosed with autism. That's a 600% increase in the last 20 years. Learn the signs at autismspeaks.org. Early diagnosis can make a lifetime of difference. Brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. Conversation around the COVID-19 pandemic heating up again in Minnesota right along with the political season. Eminem's Bill Werner is here to report that the lines between the two can and do get blurry. Well, you certainly have that right, J.W. A group called the Minnesota Voters Alliance this week filed a lawsuit in federal court against Governor Tim Walz for his executive order that requires face coverings statewide in all indoor public places. The Voters Alliance says those who comply with the governor's order and wear face coverings to the polls for next Tuesday's primary election will be violating a 1963 Minnesota law that says it's illegal to wear a mask in public. Republican State Representative Tim Miller from Prinsburg. What the governor is doing both here and with the emergency powers is either unconstitutional or certainly against the laws of the state of Minnesota. Secretary of State Steve Simon said voters will not be required to wear masks at the polls, but Voters Alliance attorney Eric Cardall claims Simon also directed election officials to record the names of maskless voters and let them know they will be reported to authorities. State lawmakers will probably be back in St. Paul again next week for another special session, the third during this unusual year of 2020, prompted by what will likely be Governor Tim Walz extending his emergency COVID powers for an additional 30 days. Republicans will probably try again to cancel those powers. House Democrats will likely say no again. But don't look for a fourth attempt to pass a bonding bill for state public works projects, not during this special session at least. House Speaker Democrat Melissa Hortman said this week because the state is selling previously authorized bonds this month, the special session in August will be a very quick in and out with no action on a bonding bill. If we were to disrupt the state's financial situation, um, that would make it more difficult to sell our bonds. It might even violate SEC uh, regulations. That means any possible action on a new bonding bill is pushed into next month. That's really the do or die moment on the bonding bill is late September. But a bonding bill is still in limbo. House Republicans continue saying they will not provide the necessary votes unless the governor gives up his emergency powers. And with COVID surging in some areas, that is not likely in the near future. 
Candidates for U.S. Senate faced off this week in a virtual debate at the Virtual Farm Fest. Republican Jason Lewis said the U.S. should move to the next phase of trade with China because it's an important market, especially for corn and soybeans. We're starting to see really, really good results from getting tough on China on phase one just this last couple of weeks. Record corn purchases. Democratic U.S. Senator Tina Smith responded, it's good there's a phase one agreement with China, but she says the U.S. still doesn't know whether that nation will live up to it. The um, erratic, chaotic approach to the negotiations with China, I think, have been a problem. And I've heard from Minnesota farmers who have just said, I just want to know, like, I want, I want some certainty here. As for low farm profits, Senator Smith said it's important to protect safety nets in the farm bill, like crop insurance and a sugar program. Plus, very important also that we keep on making sure that we're moving forward with trade deals that lift up American farmers and create opportunities. Lewis said the best thing the government can do for farmers is to get the economy going again. It starts with a good business climate, and it doesn't help when Minnesota has the fifth highest taxes in the country, according to WalletHub. It doesn't help when the Tax Cut and Jobs Act is on the chopping block if Democrats retake the Senate. And Lewis says lift the COVID lockdowns. A controversial city council proposal to replace the beleaguered Minneapolis Police Department with a community safety and violence prevention agency will not be on the ballot in the City of Lakes this fall. That after the Charter Commission voted this week to further study that issue. Commissioner Tony Newborn voted against the delay, saying although she has serious concerns about the City Council proposal, change must happen now. I hear gunshots in my block. My first inclination is to call the police. But I worry that if I call them, that my husband, who's African-American black, and if he goes out to meet them, He will be harassed, harmed, or shot by Minneapolis police officers. But Commissioner Jill Garcia called for more time to consider an issue that she argues is critically important to the safety of Minneapolitans. This isn't a popularity. This isn't a bumper sticker slogan soundbite debate. Activists disappointed. Eliza Darris with ACLU Minnesota says the goal is not to dismantle the police, but instead have specialists handle mental health and other situations, calling in police only if necessary. He says the way it is now. You're going to have five, six, seven, eight, nine police cars show up, even if we're talking about someone dealing with a mental health crisis or a mental health situation. This is opening week of the huge annual motorcycle rally in Sturgis, South Dakota. And among the quarter million people expected to show up will be a significant number of Minnesotans who are disregarding State Health Commissioner Jan Malcolm's warnings about COVID. There are people coming into the event uh, from high incidence states and it'll just be a, it's just a pretty ripe environment for further spread and folks bringing the virus back to their home communities. Malcolm acknowledges some people will go anyway. She's encouraging them when they return to Minnesota to self-quarantine for 14 days. It would be really um, prudent and a, and a really very thoughtful thing to do for people to quarantine if they if they do go to Sturgis and, and come back. And JW, as long as we have strayed a little bit away from politics with Sturgis, Let's go totally out of the ballpark and hear this play-by-play clip from Tuesday's Twins game against Pittsburgh at Target Field. Uh, what do we got here? I have no idea. There's... Players are coming off the field. Yeah, I've got... Uh... And there's a drone that is now hovering that's out around the, the ballpark right now, and that's it. <laughs> this is the first. We have a drone delay. I don't... It's, I well, it's 2020, yeah. right? What does that mean? A strange year. Everything's happening in the world, and now we have a drone delay.
and it's all yours, J.W. And Bill, to quote every high school yearbook ever, what a long, strange trip it's been. And that'll do it for another edition of Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson. On behalf of all of us here at MNN, thanks for joining us. And tune in again next week for Minnesota Matters on this MNN station.